And if the question arises, as it arose in the case of another, why was this man blind? We are confronted with the same difficulties and with the same answer. The answer of the Lord that this blindness was to be made the occasion of that marvelous exercise of power and compassion in which the Redeemer delighted. He sat by the wayside begging. Apparently he had none to help him. Apparently he had no private resources. So he was cast on the mercy of the world for his daily sustenance. And we know that the mercy of the world is cold. The kindnesses of the wicked are cruel. But he had no other option. And then the Apollos' position was, he hadn't the means of improving it. He hadn't the means of rectifying it. He had either to do this or to die. The, that these were the two alternatives that confronted him. And thus we find it, when others are enjoying the light of the day, when they are able to go wheresoever they will, he has to keep his place, sit by the wayside, begging, dependent upon the compassion of his fellow creatures. But though he was blind, he wasn't deaf. And the, he has this to commend him, that he made use of the faculties he had. He heard that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. He was aware of a certain commotion and he knew that something unusual was going on. Then, having heard, he most probably asked what this was. And he was told that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And as he made use of his uh, hearing, he also made use of his voice. He was not um, deaf, nor was he dumb, in any sense of the term. And he used his voice, and used it to some effect. He cried out, Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me. 
instead of feeling sorry for himself. And um, acquiescing in what many would have thought the inevitable. He used what power he had. He put um, his uh, <coughs> faculties to good use. And in his cry, uh, there are uh, <coughs> two points or two characteristics of his cry demand attention. And these are two points are his view of the person of the Lord and his estimate of his character. His view of his person and his estimate of his character. His view of his person was this, that he was the son of David. And his estimate of his character was that he was both able and willing. At least he could put this to the test. That he was able, he knew. And he wanted to ascertain whether he was willing to have compassion on him. Whether the Lord was willing to have compassion on him in his low estate. He addresses him then as the son of David. This was the name by which the Messiah, or one of the names by which the Messiah was known to the Jews. They might disagree on many things concerning the Messiah. But there was one thing on which they were agreed, that he was to be the son of David. We find that, of course, put beyond any doubt. When uh, the, the wise men of um, Israel were asked by the king where the Christ should be born, they replied, that he was to be born of the line of David and in the city where David was. They had no doubt about that. That was firmly fixed in their minds. And when Bartimaeus addresses the Lord under this title, Son of David, it is a confession of faith in his messiahship. He was convinced that this indeed was the Messiah promised to Israel, the Messiah looked for by the prophets, the Messiah which was to accomplish such marvelous things could do such marvelous works. Jesus, the son of David. He had no doubt in his own mind, but he was addressing his request to the right quarter. 
He had no doubt that if there was help for it, it would have to come from Jesus. But the question still remained. The question that uh, a certain leper brings to the fore when he says, Lord, if thou art willing, thou art able to make me clean. Was the Messiah to take notice of a person's life Bartimaeus? Was his time to be used in ministering to their needs? That was the question. And that is the question that is now put to the test. Those son of David, have mercy on me. This is all he could ask. But he could ask this. Now, in a way, this is what he was looking for from all who passed by as he sat by the wayside begging. He was appealing to the mercy of his fellow creatures. With what success, we are not told. But this was his business in life, we might say, to appeal to mercy. He spent his days in doing this. But he never addressed any of them as a son of David. And the type of mercy he expected from his fellow creatures was different in kind from the mercy he was now appealing for from the Son of David. Different in kind. All he could expect from his fellow creature was <clears throat> a piece of money or something to relieve his needs. But it would seem that that is not what he's looking for now. His petitions take a new direction because they are focused on a new object. He's asking for something different from what he had asked before because he is now addressing a different type of person. And the nature of the request is governed by the view he has of the person whom he addresses. He would expect little of, of those who had little but he is now expecting much. Expecting something for which he had never asked before. He is asking for the restoration of a sight. That he should be given sight. Whether restored or given to him for the first time, we don't know. That is, we don't know whether he was born blind or lost his sight later in life. 
but he's asking for something new. And the very fact that he's asking for it shows the estimate he had of Christ's person and character. Now, whether he had heard that Jesus had mercy on others like him, we do not know. And therefore, we are not permitted to speculate. But we do know that according to psychological laws, his request is governed by his inner thoughts and his inner thoughts of the one of whom he asks the request. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me, me. And he doesn't identify himself any further than this. Why? His identification was in his cry. And what a blessed thing that is. But that was so and is so. It is our cry that identifies us, perhaps more than anything else. It is this which showed the man. It is this very cry that expressed his innermost thoughts concerning Jesus and concerning himself. And our thoughts concerning Jesus and ourselves are our innermost thoughts, our most important thoughts. On me, have mercy. Have mercy on me. And he meant this cry to be heard. Whatever was to happen, he was to make perfectly certain that the cry was heard. He didn't take refuge in the idea that he cried and that therefore nothing more was required of him. Thousands do take refuge in that idea. It is very uh, <coughs> congenial to our nature to take rest in that and say, well, we did all we could. And even if we, did, if we can't go as far as that, we often say, at least we think, well, we prayed and nothing happened. As if prayer were anything in and of itself. This man was not concerned with what he did himself. He wasn't to take refuge in anything that he did or could do. His great question was this, what would Jesus do? What would he do? That was the part. That was the crux of the whole matter. And his crying was a means and but a means to an end. 
end, we had in view was what reaction would the Lord take to his cry? This he wants to know. And this is the point he wants to know. And this is what causes the anxious thought. of making himself heard, or the mode of drawing attention to himself, didn't find favor with the multitude. Immediately he began to cry, there was opposition, and formidable opposition. Those that went, and that was a huge crowd. Those that followed Jesus charged him, saying, Hold thy peace. Hold thy peace. As if they had said to him that he, he was disturbing the peace. He was a nuisance. And the people who wanted to enjoy their own uh, White circle found fault with him. He was an intrusion. Hold thy peace. But that is something he wasn't prepared to do. That was asking him more than uh, he had ever he had any intention of complying with. They had their thoughts, and certainly his cry didn't fit in with their thoughts at all. But he wasn't concerned with their thoughts. He happened to have thoughts of his own. And his conduct was dictated by his own thoughts, not by what they thought of him. Surely, one of the uh, natural and inevitable signs of being in earnest is this, that one must have thoughts of one's own. One must have a purpose, and that purpose must dictate his, his action, his conduct. And according to the strength and steadfastness of the purpose, he is not going to be turned from it because of the opinion of others. And this is true universally, but it is most certainly true and true in a peculiar sense in the, spirit, in the spiritual sphere. If anyone is in earnest, he is bound to come into conflict with the opinions of the crowd. Whether the crowd is following Jesus ostensibly or not. And this is part of the cost that has to be reckoned with. 
opposition of the crowd. And I'm sure Bartimaeus knew human nature sufficiently well, not at all to be surprised and certainly not to be disconcerted at the reaction of the crowd. He could have been pretty certain from the beginning that this was to be the reaction. So when it did come, he wasn't at all disappointed, at least not disappointed to the extent of complying with the request addressed to him. Why he did the very opposite. He cried all the more a great deal. The exhortation had a, a different effect from that, from that which was intended it would have. It certainly had an effect, but it was the very opposite of what it was intended to have. He cried so much the more. Opposition called for more energy. Opposition made it plain that this man had a purpose from which he was not to be turned aside. In other words, opposition made it plain that this man was in earnest, in dead earnest. How could it be anything else entertaining such views of the person of the one who was passing by? and knowing his own condition. Surely these two combined to fix a purpose in his mind from which he couldn't be turned aside. He wasn't crying in a vacuum. He was crying to the Son of David, to the Messiah. The one whom he, he was persuaded was able. The one who was the man, the one who was able, according to his persuasion, to do this for him. How then could he be silent? How reasonable then the request of the multitude, who couldn't enter into his case at all? And alas. that people should be so free with their advice in cases of which they know nothing and can know nothing. It would seem that some people <clears throat> have a gift of offering advice and offering advice under a pious code or look, they will tell you in any circumstances what you ought to do. They don't seem to be at a loss at all. Tell you you ought to do this and you ought to do that. But that advice is but the expression of their own ignorance. They don't know. And they cannot know. 
A wise man is reticent with his advice. He certainly would like to be earnest in season and out of season. But he knows that there are seasons which are so much out of season that he can only be silent and commit the case to God. They knew what Bartimaeus ought to do. He ought to be quiet. Yes, from their point of view. But he also had a point of view. And in this and at this time, his point of view was to prevail. He cried so much the more, Jesus, <clears throat> thou son of David, have mercy. Oh, have mercy on me. He knew what he was asking for. He was daily in close contact with his own inadequacy. He wanted something. He wanted it badly. And therefore, when he is asked the question, what wilt thou that I should do for thee? There is no hesitation. He doesn't begin to think. Now, what should I ask? He knows beforehand what he is asking for. He is not going to ask for less, and he is not going to ask for more. This is what presses upon his consciousness and he takes such a hold of his thoughts that he has no place for anything else. What will thou? Lord, that I might receive my sight. But before this there is a change in the attitude of the crowd. Jesus stands still. And they are now as ready with their advice as they were before. But the advice is the very antithesis of the one they had previously given. They had said before, be quiet. Now they say, be of good cheer. Oh, how like the attitude of the multitude. How like the fickleness of man's nature. We find this brought out again and again in the word of God, in concrete instances. <clears throat> you remember when Paul... <clears throat> And his uh, fellow passengers were cast on a certain island after the wreck of the ship they were in. Paul took up a bundle of, um, of sticks to cast on the fire and a viper came out and uh, hung on his arm. And that crowd is as ready as any crowd. 
to give an explanation of this. Their philosophy covered this as it covered everything else. It is because they said this man is a murderer. Even though he has escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. There was the there was the other, the viper, on his arm, and this was their explanation. And they were thoroughly convinced they were right. Of course they were. And then when they waited and waited to see when Paul would fall down dead, and didn't, he refused to comply with their anticipations. He simply didn't fall down dead. He continued standing, and he threw the viper off his arm into the fire. Oh no, they changed their tune. He's a god. And the viper has no power over him. And with all deference, they looked at him. A god. He was before a murderer. No, he's a god. And we see the reverse of this taking, taking place. When uh, <clears throat> at the city of uh, <clears throat> Lyconia, the elders of the city insisted on offering sacrifice to Paul and his companions. And when this didn't go the way they thought, they changed their mind, and they stoned him. They start stoning their god. Gods that are easily made are as easily unmade. So it is, a swing from one extreme to another. Those who were ready to find fault with this man for shouting, for crying out. Now they compliment him on his uh, sagacity, his wisdom. You were right. Now be of good cheer. Now that you have refused to listen to us, be of good cheer. And strange to say, even the crowd can be right sometimes. And it was so in this case, there was reason for this man to be of good cheer. Be of good comfort, wives. Why? What has happened? He calleth thee. He calleth thee. He has a personal invitation into the presence of the Messiah. And the value of the invitation was measured by his thoughts of who this one was. The son of David is calling him. And this being the case, there was no hesitation. 
he casting aside or casting away his garment walks and came to him. Every obstruction was cast aside. He couldn't afford to let anything delay him in his answer to this word he calleth thee. He is not to be detained by anything. And in a spiritual sense, we are reminded of this again and again, and especially reminded of it in the epistle to the Hebrews where we read, let us throw aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race set before us looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith and the sin that doth so easily beset us. And that word beset, that means a garment that was ready to, to, to hinder the runner in the race. What we have here is the, the literal counterpart, the physical counterpart, of that spiritual advice which the apostle gives us in the epistle to the Hebrews. He cast away his garment. That is the outer garment uh, that uh, <clears throat> men wore in those days. That would impede his progress. And he wanted to have nothing of that. He called it for Nothing must detain him. Nothing must delay him. He came to Jesus. How? He is still blind. As blind as he was before. Yet, he was able to make haste and to come to Jesus. We are not told whether he was uh, guided to him by someone or whether through um, the hypersensitiveness of his hearing he was made able to make straight for the place from which the voice came. But it wasn't Jesus himself who spoke, you say, that is true. It was the people who told him that Jesus was calling. Now this is one of the details that scripture doesn't answer. Shall we say, it is part of our curiosity to which the scriptures don't cater. Why? Because 
this is not necessary to the right understanding of the incident. It is a detail which has no place in the moral we are to gather from the incident. What is of importance is this? The man cried. Jesus called and he came. He came to As blind, he came to him as he was, in other words, that no man ever came or can come in any other way. <clears throat> Certainly there were things working up to this, but he came in order to receive sight. He didn't come because he had sight. Now this is uh, another aspect of the perversity of which we spoke this morning, by which we are so apt to turn things the wrong way. The natural man's idea is this, that he would come to God when he is better. The natural man's idea is that when he will improve himself, when he will give diligence in one direction or in another or in many, then he can think of drawing near unto God. That's man's theology, natural man's theology. But it doesn't hold because it's not true. Supposing this man had said, How can I come? Or oh, he could have raised many objections. We all do. And the easiest thing in the world is to raise objections. And it would seem that the mind that is somewhat concerned is a fertile soil for raising objections. You never saw a man who can raise such objections as a man who has come, who has become concerned for his soul. Some things of which you never heard. He will have this objection and that objection and the other objection. Though the thing is, all these have their place, but they are all put in the wrong place. This man could have raised many. He could have answered in self-pity, why I cannot come, I'm blind. You know very well that you're asking me to do the impossible. He was too much in earnest to give place to ideas of that kind. He came. He came. And there was reason why he should be of good comfort or good cheer. Even when he was blind, yes. When he was still blind, 
When it was exactly the same way as it was before, yes. The occasion had developed into a reason for this man to be of good comfort. And that reason didn't develop in the man. Be of good comfort. What comes after that? It's not you. Be of good comfort, you know. Be of good comfort, he. He calleth for thee. The comfort is in him. The reason for it is in him. Its occasion is in him. Be of good comfort, he. He calleth for thee. And on this he came, came with his request, presented not something new, but exactly what he wanted for, from what he asked for from the beginning. Lord, that I should receive my sight. Nothing more, nothing less. This occupied all his universe of thought. For the moment he was obsessed with this. Nothing else could enter. That I should receive my sight. And he did. He was not disappointed. He received his sight. Literally so. And on whom do you think he would like to look first? There were many wonderful things around him which he could see. But on whom do you think, I say, he would like to have looked first of all? And as a matter of fact, I take it. But this is exactly what he did. He looked at his benefactor. He looked at the one who had done such wonderful things for him. And as what he had done was wonderful, he himself was more wonderful still. As we read of Jesus performing miracles, we ought to read against this background that he himself is the greatest miracle of all. There is no miracle comparable with God manifest in the flesh. And that is one of the reasons why the deity of the Lord is denied today. Miracle in general is denied. This universe has no room for miracles. So they tell us, therefore, it has no room for the miracle of the Lord's person. The miracle of God becoming flesh. 
And what anyone says that a miracle is impossible, he then by, by that very statement, he denies the deity of the Lord. For the question of miracles is to be decided not in what Jesus did, but in what Jesus is. What he is in his birth. God manifest in the flesh. And the expressions of this wonder coming out in the natural world. These are the miracles that are immediately connected with Jesus himself. And on that ground, miracles are to be denied or to be <clears throat> saved God. Jesus is the miracle, both in his life and death. And by his, in his death, I include the resurrection. Those who deny miracles say that there's no resurrection. No. All miracles have to be um, cut up. This is what they call the demythologizing. The gospel taking the myths out of it. And everything that is a miracle is a myth. Jesus is the great miracle. <clears throat> and all miracles are to be understood from that viewpoint. All his miracles. He opened his eyes. He received his sight. What did he do? He followed Jesus. He followed Jesus in the way. Who do you think he was looking at? Whom do you think he was looking at? What was he thinking as he followed in the way? Oh, he couldn't but have said sight is a wonderful thing. But the most wonderful thing about my sight is this. That I can look on him who gave me my sight. I can follow him now. I can see him. And this is what I want to do. To follow him who heard my cry. To follow him through good report and ill report. To live for him and not forever. May the Lord grant us the same spirit, performing in a spiritual sense the same miracle, opening your eyes to behold the wonderful works of God and the wonderful works of God that concentrated in Jesus. To behold him who is the wonder of wonders, whose name is